Welcome to the Breaking Into Starters podcast, where we make it easy for you to understand what it takes to break into tech and get the skills you need to fulfill your dreams. On today's episode, we interview Balaji Srinivasan, who gave me the confidence I needed four years ago to quit my job and move to Silicon Valley and do what I felt like I was meant to do with my co-founders, Arthur and Timor. For those of you that don't know, uh, Balazi is the CTO of a large crypto company called Coinbase. And today he shares his thoughts on coding boot camps, your time, flaws in traditional education, and how to take control of your career. If you're someone that is struggling with imposter syndrome, uh, wants to know about remote work choices, uh, globalization, reorganization, and collaboration, then go to breakingintostars.com slash webinar so that you can take action and fulfill what you feel that you are meant to do. While you are listening to this episode, pay attention to what Balaji says about former podcast guests Preeti Kasharetti and Hasib Qureshi that were on episodes 4 and 18, and they have gone on to start their own companies and become investors themselves that may take a bet on you in the future. Um, if you have not liked the Breaking Stars page, left a comment on Facebook, or wrote a v- review, please do that right now. Um, and we are really excited for you all to hear this episode. Um, it's a very surreal moment because it's coming full circle. Without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timo, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes. Yeah, so it's a Thursday night. And tonight's episode, we're recording out of Coinbase. On the podcast, we've had a lot of guests who broken into tech. We've also brought on hiring managers and VPs of engineering. Tonight, we're, we have a very special guest who's a CTO of Coinbase, and I'm really excited to hear his story and definitely tune in. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah. So for those of you that have read the Breaking Stars blog post, the original one, you'll know a name, Balaji Srinivasan. And this is really a surreal moment because this is the second time I've actually seen him, first time that Arch and Timor have seen him. And for those of you that don't know, not only was he, is he the CTO of Coinbase, but before this, he was a founder of Council, Earn, Teleport, and he was a, a general partner at Andreessen. And now he's, he's doing a lot of amazing things. Today, we're going to talk about a few things in addition to education and his thoughts about things in the future of work. But for now, let's just say welcome, Balaji. Thanks, guys. So we've, this is the second interview that we've done with somebody as senior as you. Can you explain to the people what a chief technology officer does in tech? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, the the CTO's role is to use technology to advance a business. And that sounds really generic, but it means you're not just, let's say, you know, the head of IT, right? The head of IT is using computers as a tool internally and, you know, making sure that people's software updates are refreshed and getting the MacBooks ordered on time. And so on. it's a very important job. But the CTO's job is, okay, look at where technology is today, where it's going to be tomorrow, figure out how we can adopt it, figure out like what our architecture looks like, and use technology as the guiding principle of the business. And it's a particularly important role in a technology company because in many ways it defines kind of the future of the business. And it has, it intersects with lots of other things. It intersects with business development, and it certainly intersects with 
you know, comms and uh, you do a lot of public speaking and a lot of recruiting and, and so on and so forth. You're, you're basically like the senior most engineer often at a company in, in a sense. Got it. And so if someone is entry-level engineer and is thinking about getting up to this role, what's the typical path to get to that level and what kind of things do you have to do and learn? along the way? Well, there's there's two ways to do it. One is to just start your own company and call yourself CTO. That's, <laughs> that's what I did starting out, right? And uh, and then you have to grow into the role and build that into a you know, multi-hundred person company. We sold that for a few hundred million dollars recently. So that was kind of, okay, you take the title, just uh-huh. like you start a company, call yourself CEO and, and see if you can fill those shoes that you just yeah. made for yourself. And the second way is to you know work your way up within a large company, also totally legitimate you know kind of, kind of thing. And uh, you know, like if you look at Satya Nadella or Sundar Pichai, they started as just engineers within, you know, Microsoft and Google respectively and worked their way all the, all the way up to CEO. So it's sort of similar, you know, to work your way up to CTO. Yeah. yeah. So as a CTO, and I'm actually also CTO of Career Karma, like how do you stay up to date with all the technologies? Because there's so many new trends, there's serverless, there's like React, the completely like new way to write front end and just kind of like, how do you stay up to date with all the technologies and decide what's the right fit for your company? Well, that's a really good question. I think, you know, so first is to be a good CTO, you actually need to enjoy technology as a hobby. Like, you know, when somebody else might go to the club, you're like, hey, let me stay home and mess around with this new, you know, piece of software or this new like 3D printer or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that can't feel like a job. It's actually just something you want to do, right? So that's kind of one aspect of it where you really need to, to, you know, live and breathe it 24-7. And then a kind of another aspect of it is sort of the taste and when to know, hey, this is bleeding edge and it's cool to know about versus, okay, this is ready to start rolling in to you know, our products. It's actually firm enough to, to base something on. Steve Jobs actually you know, had a good one-liner on this where he said that Apple invests in technologies that are in their spring, mm-hmm. right? Not their infancy, but in their spring, right? So usually that means somebody else has taken some risk on the technology and now it's uh, it's functional enough that you're not the very first company to ever have tried to make money with it or to do something real with it. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. Like you wait for somebody else to have taken the hit. So let me give you an example. Like with Rust, I'm sure there's been a lot of good programs written in Rust, but within the blockchain community, Parity, one of the major Ethereum clients, was written in Rust. And uh, you know while Parity has had some bugs or what have you. Overall, you know, like Rust has proven itself, at least within the blockchain community, because everyone's seen, okay, you built a massive project, a blockchain, which is a really hard thing to build. It's like a database and a protocol. And it's, in this case, also got a, you know, quasi little compiler uh, in the sense of something that takes solidity and, and turns into something. And that's, that's complicated to build. And you can build that all in Rust. Okay, someone else is taking the hit on Rust. You can do something real in it, right? And I think the third thing is to make sure that you're not just not too early and not too late but that you're always thinking about how each of these pieces fit together, mm-hmm. right? And it's very easy to just, you know, have shiny object syndrome where, oh, you see something in Hacker News, let's put that into the <laughs> into production tomorrow, right? That's like, you know, beginner CTO kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's tempting to do that. Oh, this thing, all the engineers are talking about it and so on. But usually what you want to do is bookmark that and then like set a calendar event for yourself. Six months in, 12 months in, 18 months in, when people are not talking about it, you go and you assess the state of it. And then you say, hey, is this you know, trending up? Is, are, are there things happening that are kind of you know, quieter, but aren't in the news per se? So I set my own kind of cadence so that I'm checking in on something as opposed to it checking in on me. And often, like by playing offense rather than defense, then you can really monitor technologies and kind of control you know, what, what things you introduce at what time. Got it. Got it. 
And so given that you're in this leadership role and you've done it as a founder and you're doing it at, at a larger organization, something that we haven't really unpacked on the podcast is technical debt. So can you talk a little bit about technical debt and what committing to the right code base means and things like that? Sure. So, you know, the concept of technical debt, it's a, it's a good phrase because basically what it means is that you are getting something done today that you're going to have to pay for tomorrow. And often, you know, what that means is, okay, we need to ship the product tomorrow or later this week. Therefore, we're going to copy paste this bit of code because it's too much work to factor it out into a proper library and make it an API call. We're just going to copy paste it. And we know that's introducing so-called technical debt. We're going to go back in the future and have to do more work to clean it up, mm-hmm. but it's expedient. It will get us our launch. It'll be functional. Customers will be fine with it, et cetera. And there's many, many different forms of technical debt. That's one of them, copy-paste. But there's others like, oh, we're going to use you know, this old MySQL database rather than migrating to Postgres, or we're going to run analytics on the prod site rather than moving to Redshift or whatever. A lot of different ways that you can do something suboptimal that's expedient that will cost you in some ways later, right? Got it. Got it. Yeah. And so, and so, how do you manage as a CTO? How do you manage technical debt? And like, what type of principles do you try to follow to make sure your teams and people that report to you follow in regard to technical debt? Well, you know, one thing is it's always tempting to just stop future work and pay off technical debt, and that almost never is the right answer because maybe once in a while, but the big bang switch over, the big bang cleanup. You know, the problem with that is it's usually not something that's visible to customers, number one. And number two, it's always more complicated than you think, right? There's a reason that those old hacks happen the way they did. So I'm a big fan of like incremental paydowns on technical debt rather than trying to just do a big bang work stoppage and pay it off. Yeah. Got it. And as a CTO, you also do a lot of hiring. When you look at candidates who are just like getting their first job out of college or they're getting like maybe they went through a non-traditional path and uh, they're kind of knocking on the door wanting to get a seat on your rocket ship, what kind of qualities or what do you look for in those candidates and how does someone make themselves stand out? That's a great question. So personally, at least, I always try to and advise other entrepreneurs and you know, folks I invest in and so on. I always try to hire for ability over experience typically because you know, that's something where it's better for a younger startup. You want someone who's hungry and has the ability and wants to prove themselves. In terms of what I'd look for on a CV, I would like to see that someone has rung the bell at least like once or recently. And yes, that could be, oh, you know, they went to MIT or Stanford. It could be that they worked at Google or Facebook. Those are kind of like name brands. But it could also be that they did a really great open source project or they've got an amazing portfolio on their website and they're out in the middle of nowhere. Or they did well on like a programming competition or Hacker Rank or something like that. And so there are these avenues like Hacker Rank, like also Hacker One, which is different. Hacker Rank is like programming yeah. exams. Hacker One is like for, you know, security people, mm-hmm. right? And there's folks who are coming out truly the middle of nowhere, like Mexico or you know, India, Brazil, et cetera. And they're just crushing it, you know, and they don't have any training. They're just Google things. And I can tell they're really smart by what they've done there. Mm-hmm. So they have to have shown something that's world-class and then you hire them, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a traditional credential like a Stanford or MRT or, or Google or Facebook. Got, Got it. it. And, and speaking of like Googling things and learning, I think it'd be helpful to like talk a little bit about how you learn how to code. I know you recently tweeted something about like YouTube education and things like that. So how did you learn how to code? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think, you know, my background is actually more in math than computer science per se. So I did my BS, MS, and PhD in electrical engineering and MS in chemical engineering at Stanford. And that actually focused a lot more on statistical signal processing, computational statistics, you know, complex analysis, partial differential equations, all that type of stuff, right? And I think that strong foundation in, in mathematics made computer science, I think, relatively easier 
there, there's certainly obviously computer science is challenging and whatnot, but if you really understand math, CS, a lot of CS can be reduced to math. And so then given that mathematical foundation, I was able to basically self-teach a lot of computer science. You had to learn a lot of it for EE. You know, when you're programming a, a circuit board or you're programming a robot or something like that, you're, you're learning to program. Basically at Stanford, a double E would be able to program as well as anybody else other than a computer scientist because you'd have like enough CS classes. But then there's like what you learn in school and then when, what you actually learn when building something. And those are quite different, like computer science and software engineering. It's the difference between, you know, understanding how fast this algorithm is going to run in theory, then actually implementing it in practice, deploying it on Amazon, writing clean code, writing multiplayer code that others can edit, maintainable code, and making money on it. Like now you start getting out of software engineering and into business. Those are actually less overlapping than you might think. And that stuff is almost entirely self-taught. Got it. Got it. And it's something that you and I have spoke about historically, and we'll talk a little bit more about how we connected later on, is like your thoughts on like teaching the people worldwide how to code. And you've actually taken steps towards that through the most popular course on Coursera, Startup Engineering, that I think Arthur and Timor were able to take. So can you talk a little bit about you know your thoughts on massive open online courses, the state of education, and, and where things are today? Yeah. So I think it was was the most popular course on Coursera or one of the top five or 10 in, in 2013. I don't know if it is still. I doubt it actually because it's been offline for a while. But, uh, but yeah, the course hit about 250,000 people. And what I wanted to try to do is fill that gap in between, okay, you know, I know academic CS or I've kind of heard of this thing and I can put up a website and I can set up payments and I can actually make money doing that. And that's kind of a wide gap where a lot of the stuff in the middle is not thought of as, it's thought of as basic stuff by the software engineers and sort of is not important enough to teach often by academics. And so it falls into this gap over here where, where it's hard for people to bridge that gap. So, so yeah, so it's like, you know, how to set up your terminal and the Unix command line and configure Emacs and Git and how do you expect to do version control and deployments and rollbacks and blah, 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 all that mm-hmm. stuff. And that stuff, which you kind of pick up lesson by lesson by being around people who know how to do that. Mm-hmm versus being taught in an ABCD kind of way. Yeah. That's what yeah. I tried to do. I tried to teach that in a systematic yeah. way. Yeah. And it actually is coming full circle. Like Ruben said, uh, Archer and I, we started taking your courses and a, a bunch of other courses back in 2013, 14. And then we ended up continuing to learn, did coding boot camps, and then ended up working as engineers for three years before starting Career Karma. What is your thought on uh, like boot camps since they're fairly like new, they've been around for five years? What is your thoughts in terms of their, like, the types of topics that they cover, kind of the future of where alternative education is heading? It's a great question. So I like kind of the, I like the concept of boot camps in the abstract. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I like where Lambda School is going, where they have a lot more skin in the game, mm-hmm. you know, where they are basically giving, I believe, something like free tuition, and mm-hmm. then they take a percentage of income. Yeah, yeah. And that is really impressive if they can pull that off, because it means that they're completely aligned with their students, right? And that's actually quite unusual, because if you think about how you know traditional higher education mm-hmm. works, they just get the money up front, and you know they charge basically the same price, whether they're teaching you art history or, or computer science. And even if those two degrees may be radically different in terms of their monetizability, because it's no longer the college's problem, they pass it on to the debt collector, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe, you know, if you're somebody who's really making a rational decision about you know, those two things and you're okay with the debt load and so on that one might impose versus the other, fine. But often 18-year-olds aren't in a position to do that. So I think it is it is good that we're starting to move towards a model where at least people have a choice of a lower cost 
more vocationally oriented education. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but I'm, I'm glad there's that choice. Yeah. Yeah. And so given that some people are still going the traditional education route, what are your thoughts on like college, student loans, things like that? What are my thoughts on that? So, you know, on the one hand, I understand the appeal of academia. It's great. There's like basically no deadlines for anything. I mean, there's deadlines for homework, <laughs> but that's like kind of nothing relative to like a product deadline or, you know, a shipping deadline. You know, people expect real results, not just, you know, just like problems and, and so on. So I understand the appeal of it. And, you know, colleges are very plush, you know, nowadays they were even 20, 30 years ago with, you know, the gym and, and the racquetball court and the pool and all this stuff. But all this stuff is really expensive. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, college is sort of like front loading your life with a four-year vacation, <laughs> right? And then you pay for it for the rest of your life, yeah. right? Uh, and so, you know, that's not, that may or may not be the appropriate, you know, tactic, right? Like what I'd like to see is something where you graduate with $500,000 in profit rather than, or, or in, in savings rather than $500,000 in debt and, or, you know, 120 or, or whatever the number is nowadays. Yeah. And I think that's possible to do, but it's a little tricky to do because there's so many cultural forces that still push people to say, oh, go to college. If you're not going to college, it's bad, et cetera. I think it might be easier to, to kind of start something like that, at least partially either outside the US or outside the demographics of people who've traditionally gone to college. And hopefully stuff like, you know, as I mentioned, Lambda School, stuff like that is, is a, a step in the right direction. Got it. Got it. So something that we talk about as well is that how tech has taken over every industry and how tech is no longer an industry anymore. Everything has either, is either tech or tech adjacent. So we always reference or we tend to reference Mark Andreessen's piece about software uh, eating the world. But you also wrote a piece called Softwares Reorganizing the World. And then you also launched something with Sten called Teleport. So can you talk a little bit more about free people moving, cloud cities, cloud countries, and your thoughts about like borderless countries and things like that? Sure. So first, let me speak to the first piece, which is why is tech a part of everything? So in like the early 20th century, physicists basically took, you know, the equations that they had now, you know, mastered, you know, the uh, like electricity and magnetism and mechanics and thermodynamics in particular, and then a little bit later quantum mechanics. And they just went into field after field and sort of kicked in the doors and revolutionized these fields and said, oh, you don't know what you're doing. Let me write down like the physical equations and now we'll actually mathematize everything, right? And so a lot of things sort of got revolutionized that way. And physicists were these great generalists. Like, you know, one example is Luria and Delbruck went into biology and they were able to just apply some relatively simple, you know, mathematical techniques from physics to the study of, you know, microbes and, and so on. Okay. And then what happened was somewhere mid-century, every discipline kind of fragmented and there wasn't as much, you know, sharing of information. Somebody in, let's say, the analysis of, you know, traffic on, on the road would not have too much to talk to with somebody who was, I don't know, looking at uh, finance or yep. whatever, right? And then what happened was that towards the end of the 20th century, you started to have computer science. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you had the deployment and, and the, you know, mainstreaming of computers. So mm -hmm. algorithms became important everywhere. Mm -hmm. And those algorithms computed on data and mm -hmm. databases became important everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is that in any field that you go into, there are algorithms mm -hmm. and there is data. So you go into taxis and there are algorithms to route the cabs around and there's data's, uh, data on their trips. You go into finance and there's algorithms to like calculate your order book and there's data on what the past order book status was. Or you go into, you know, hotels or into movies or music or whatever. And all of them have A, algorithms and B, data. And what that means is if you're good at computer science and statistics, you can be like the physicists of 100 years ago and just walk into any room 
and immediately, you know, add value to that company. It can be Walmart, it can be Best Buy, it can be Starbucks. They have data and they're going to have algorithms, right? So that's kind of why every industry has become a tech industry. There's always some underlying logic to that mm-hmm. industry, whether you call it a business process, whether you call it an algorithm or what have you, you know, an algorithm is sort of like a, an upscale word for a business process. Because, yeah. You know, like, okay, there's some math, we can do some analysis here. A business process is just I do X and then Y and then Z or whatever, right? And so that's why if you, if you have that firm foundation, you can go in and be like, okay, show me your database. Boom. Okay. Here's some column statistics I'd calculate, some row statistics, some correlation, some mm-hmm. this, some that, right? So that's why every industry is now tech-driven. Yep. Okay. And another way of thinking about it is, all right, so you're sitting at your computer, you're typing in these magic symbols, things are happening. And then what that does is it basically it means that you're sort of crafting the order in you know, the cloud like this, and then you're exporting it to these actuators, mm-hmm. right? So concrete example, like you visualize drones, right? Mm-hmm. You, you program the drone's flight path, and then you push it out, and then they all just pick up and go, right? But whether that's you know, like it could be 3D printers. It could be taxis that you're moving around the world. Mm-hmm. It could be door locks that you're opening and closing. Mm-hmm. It's just basically you hit enter and then like the world like vibrates uh-huh. and does what you just asked it to do in yeah. exactly the way that you asked it to do it, even if not necessarily the way you intended to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So in this fashion, you can sort of decouple a lot of the process of generating value from the location where that value is actually delivered, mm-hmm. right? So that's like a really important concept. You're starting to, you pull it away from exactly where the actuators are. And think about how different that is than like mining or, you know, like oil, these traditional businesses. Even mm-hmm. those are becoming softwareized or, you know, software is eating them. Even five years ago, like a company like Rio Tinto yep. was running mining trucks, like like trucks to like move the ore back and forth mm-hmm. from a remote control center in Perth. Interesting. Right. So they're running them remotely. They're hitting enter and these things are moving around. So even yep. these like traditionally very physical businesses mm-hmm are actually also getting eaten by software, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like the macro of like why this thing is happening, mm-hmm. okay? And so then what's, what is one of the consequences? Well, so as you start divorcing value creation from location, right? Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the specific site at which you're assembling becomes maybe less important, right? Yep. And so people become more mobile. They become more, more nomadic. They have the ability to pick up at the drop of a hat and, you know, call an Uber and get an Airbnb and mm-hmm. be working remote. And you know, even the question, where are you, is actually sort of a neologism, right? Mm-hmm. Like back in 1800 or 1700, you know, before the telephone, like, where are you? Well, I'm sitting across the table from you, you know, <laughs> right? Like, like it's, it's like a yeah. very modern question, right? Yeah. Even like even 20 years ago, like most people, if you, you know, unless they're calling from a payphone, where are you is like an unusual question. But mm-hmm. now it happens all the time. You're constantly communicating it because there's more uncertainty in it. And why is there more uncertainty? Because people are changing their location more. Okay. So one observation is this, is that mobile has made us more mobile, mm-hmm. right? Second observation is that because of social networks, we have all these folks who we start to meet online, who mm-hmm. we know better than the person who's next to us in an apartment building, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of folks, there's, there's thousands of people I've met from online, from Twitter, from Facebook, whatever, that more from Twitter maybe than, than Facebook, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> uh, that are that I've met in person, but that live very far away, right? But they just share similar interests. They're interested in, in you know, some of the same, you know, technical topics or whatever. And uh, so that combination of A, massively increased personal mobility, B, you know, the ability to kind of sort of separate value creation from location and C, people from far away that share your values that, you know, like can now move to be in person, I think over time is going to lead to a wave of mass migrations where folks start to concentrate more according to their shared like beliefs and and interests and you know hobbies and and stuff like that 
than to like geographic proximity per se. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And so like speaking about like, you know, shared interests, beliefs and revolutionizing industries, one of the first talks that we saw you do while we were still in Atlanta is um, voice versus exit. I think it's an important concept to talk about because a lot of people don't know that they have these opportunities at their disposal. Cause, so can you elaborate a little bit on voice versus exit and the power that people have? Sure. So, you know, voice versus exit, another term for it is like voice versus choice, mm-hmm. right? Which kind of rhymes a little, a little memorable, right? <laughs> Bars. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the basic idea is that if there's something and you want to to change it, let's take a few examples, right? So let's say that you're a customer of a company and you don't like the product, right? Mm-hmm. Voice is submitting a complaint form and exit is taking your business somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. For an open source project, voice is submitting a patch and exit is forking the code base and and doing something else, right? If a country is going in the wrong direction, you know, voice is casting your vote and exit is emigrating and so on and so forth. Like basically in, in, you know, in, in the context of many different situations, you can try to change the thing from within, which is voice, or you can say, okay, I'm not going to be able to change it but I do really feel strongly about this issue. So I'm going to leave and I'm going to do my own thing, right? Mm-hmm. And whether you call that exit, whether you call that choice, it is something that actually is a complement to voice and gives voice its strength. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you, you know, like, like as a company, right, you will hear lots and lots of customer complaints. But the thing that customers actually leave for to another company is what they really cared about, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes they will complain about something that's not actually what they cared about or the, the volume may not be as high. Mm-hmm as what they're actually taking their business to somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. So the person who takes their business somewhere else is actually, in a way, voicing something by exiting, mm-hmm. right? You know, same with a country. Like, you know, you may say, okay, I don't like this, that, and the other, but you'll put up with them. But then this thing really is what makes you leave, and then folks should pay attention to that or will pay attention to them. Yeah. So, so that's how I think about these two forces. And a very important thing about technology is it is increasing the ability to, increasing choice, increasing the ability to exit in many, many different ways, from making us more mobile so you can change your location to having lots of sources of information to choose from so you're not restricted to just one information source, to having many different choices of career opportunity with search engines mm-hmm. and so on. So like it's just massively expanding choice and, and microeconomic leverage in many, many different ways. And so that's like the macro, like technology is really increasing the ability to exit, to choose if you don't like your current arrangements. Yeah. So we talked a lot about immigration, exercising your voice through exit. And Archer and I, we were born in Ukraine and our parents chose to exercise their right and exit Ukraine and bring us to the United States. I wanted to ask you your thoughts on um, kind of immigrations and how immigration is um, the fuel of this country. And we have a lot of examples of founders like the founder of Pioneer, which is a, a startup that recently launched, which invests in uh, human capital coming to the United States. The founder came from Israel, went through Y Combinator, and now he's able to start businesses in this country. I know you're one of the advisors. What is your, I guess, thought on the immigration and why you decided to advise uh, Pioneer? Yeah, sure. So Pioneer is interesting because the goal is to try to find smart people anywhere in the world and then back them with these microgrants. And Daniel and I and some other folks involved that have been talking about this idea for some time, I actually want to do something like this all the way back in 2013, 2014. So I think the internet's a very powerful thing to find that kind of talent out in the middle of nowhere. For example, all the way back in either 2013 or 2012, there was a kid in Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, who got one of the highest scores on the circuits exam 
of MIT, but he wasn't an MIT student. He was just someone who was taking the courses online. And so it was this really remarkable talent, kind of in the middle of nowhere, who deserved a shot on the world stage, right? And there are so many folks like that, you know, places like Nigeria or Brazil or, you know, the Middle East, India, you know, places like that where the 20th century kind of left them out in some ways, right? Like the, the countries were poor and their parents were poor, maybe through no fault of their own, you know, just because like, you know, they just didn't have the opportunity. And now we can give them that kind of opportunity with the internet, potentially. We take that cell phone and that's a skyhook, you know, that, that brings them to, to where they deserve to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and speaking of like these giving people opportunities on the world stage that are really talented and the power of the internet to collaborate with each other and meet each other, something that you've talked about is massively collaborative mathematics and the ability to put a lot of intelligent people or talented people solving a problem at the same time and being able to solve things quicker than it would have taken historically that might have taken like 100 years and it might be done in like 50 years versus like or like even a year. So what what are your thoughts about like collaboration online? Yeah, so massively collaborative mathematics is is super interesting because it's not it's not obvious that it would work. So for example, like what are the best examples of online collaboration? Wikipedia articles on non-contentious topics are pretty good where a bunch of folks, the collective intelligence will update the articles on eigenvalues or, you know, like the Rust programming language, and it'll get pretty darn good with just this distributed intelligence, uh, you know, updating it. And, you know, with something like math, you might think, oh, this is too recondite. It's too, you know, abstruse. You know, folks are not going to be able to necessarily contribute versus, you know, on a, on a more mainstream topic, like, I don't know, the catalog of every Simpsons episode ever or, some, or something like that, which Wikipedia is really good at. It's got a lot of <laughs> comic book nerd type, type people. But it turns out that if you build that community of mathematicians following like Terry Tao's blog or Tim, I think Tim Gowers' blog, well, you have that critical mass. And in the comment section, you can just go at it and just start proving things. And that's really interesting and kind of non-obvious mm-hmm. that you know even in specialist areas of math, you might be able to have 100 or 1,000 mathematicians that are smarter together than any one of them. So I thought it was very cool. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of like the world stage and location, can you talk a little bit about like people's thoughts on Silicon Valley? Like I know when you and I met through Twitter, actually, you know, everybody kind of like was talking about move to San Francisco. That's the best way to break in tech. You have to move there. That's the only way. And so now people are starting to have a different conversation. So can you talk about that conversation, how we're moving towards like decentralization and what that actually really means? Yeah, I'd say today my advice would be for someone just starting out that Technology is way, way, way bigger than San Francisco or Silicon Valley even, or Silicon Valley plus Seattle. Technology is now this absolute global phenomenon. And there's, you know, San Francisco and Silicon Valley will always, well, for a long time will be very important cloud capitals, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, it'll be major tech centers. But if I was advising somebody today, you know, I mentioned this a few times, here's what I do for someone who's like, you know, 21 years old, just starting out. I'd say... A, get the, I know this sounds this sound funny or like really obvious advice, but hear me out for a second. <laughs> so get the highest paying job you can as an entry level engineer at a Google or a Facebook or maybe a large company that is going to go public soon and optimize for basically cash compensation. You know, I mean, equity is fine, but it should be equity that is close to cash, like very, you know, very likely to go public soon or already public, right? Work incredibly hard that first year, like leave nothing on the table, you know, really make work the focus, obviously take care of your health and whatnot, but, but really work hard, make yourself indispensable. Right. And then 
at the end of one year or whenever your promotional period comes up, ask to work remote, mm. right? Mm. Do not ask for promotion to a manager job. Do not even actually accept that because if you accept the promotion to a manager job, then you're now a hub. And if you're a hub, it's much, much harder to work remote, right? Mm -hmm. A spoke can work remote much more easily, mm -hmm. right? Because you just don't have to coordinate as many people. You don't have to have as many like in-person, face-to-face conversations. It's, it's less of a person management thing and more of a just an execution thing, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason that's really important is if you've got this you know, high-paying cash job and you work remote, well, you can slash your cost of living by like 5X deterministically, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> if you go to like teleport.org or mm -hmm. Nomadlist, you can find places that are one-fifth or one-seventh or even one-tenth the price of San Francisco and uh, they have an internet connection, right? Mm -hmm. So you find basically the place which is the cheapest in the world subject to the constraint of, you know, maybe you want a safe city or maybe you want a warm city or, or whatever your, your preferences are, right? Maybe, maybe you do want a club there or maybe you don't, right? Okay, maybe just focus, right? Like, a, like an ashram, you know, just, just meditate almost. And the thing about this is it's completely within your power, right? Yeah. So you get like, and it doesn't have to be obviously an engineer job. It could be a designer job or even a lawyer job or anything that allows you to work remote basically, mm -hmm. right? And focus on the ability to work remote with a high base as like the most important thing. Because now once you're out there, okay, now you're only spending, I don't know, let's say 20K a year all in on your living expenses. Mm -hmm. And everything else, you know, after taxes, you're banking. Mm -hmm. So every year that you're working there, like, you know, you are saving two, three years of personal runway. Mm -hmm. And so now after just, you know, let's, let's say you're getting three years per year. After two years of working, you have six years of personal runway, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't need angel investment. Mm -hmm. You are financially independent. It's like a deterministic path to financial independence. Mm -hmm. If you can get a remote work job that pays enough, you know, cash compensation. And frankly, you know, it doesn't even have to be like, you know, an engineer job paying like a hundred thousand or, or, or way more than that. It can just be something that allows you to work remote because an American salary at a, you know, non-American living condition price point can give you this huge arbitrage, yeah. right? And one of the things about that is that's a relatively recent phenomenon. It's the last 10 or 20 years that a huge amount of the world has become pretty livable, yeah. right? Because the internet, you know, like it depends on what you like to do, but if you just like to read and you're kind of quiet and you're like, okay, I don't want to, you know, be in like a, a dangerous area, but if I've got internet and I've got a bed and I don't know, like... Starbucks or, or whatever it is that you mm -hmm. like there nearby. You got some basic kind of things and you don't like to go to expensive restaurants or, or the opera or what have you, but almost anywhere in the world kind of will suffice. You're yeah. really flexible. And so this is actually a deterministic way to get years and years of personal runway. Yeah. And it's so much easier to cut your expenses by five or 10 X mm -hmm. than to make five or 10 X more money. Yeah. Right. Like an exit, like in the sense of you know, like selling your company is possible, but just really, really hard to do. But an exit in the sense of like leaving to a lower cost jurisdiction is like 100% achievable. Yeah. 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 No, that, that's so really how would you go about potentially like starting your own company? So if you are living, let's say in a, uh, somewhere in broad where your costs were like five times less, how would you go about building a team, starting a company and potentially competing with other startups that are based in Silicon Valley? Like what do you think would be the advantages that you would have based out of there? Well, I think new things are opening up. So, you know, as much as I like tech and I like startups and I like, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I have founded companies and so on, I would definitely just not call it for everybody. It's like, it's just very challenging and, and stressful and non-deterministic 
And I think what most people actually want is financial independence, mm-hmm. which is very different than you know the motivations required to found a company. I think to found a company, I cannot speak for everyone, but I think for a large percentage of founders, including myself, it is to get something that you cannot buy that you must build. So for example, for Elon Musk, why SpaceX? Because he could not buy a trip to Mars. Mm-hmm. He had to build a trip to Mars, right? Okay. So for me, like I, you know, why do we do councils? Like I really wanted to build, like make the genome useful, like to take all this theoretical stuff and actually make a genetic thing that was actually useful. And I couldn't buy that because it wasn't out there, mm-hmm. right? So had to build it. And, you know, so whereas I, I at least personally, I'm, I'm sure there's other folks who have done this, but I could never motivate myself to start a razor blade company or a clothes company or something like mm-hmm. that because there's plenty of good options out there. I just not passionate enough about it. And like a company is so hard to yeah. do. I mean, you guys, you guys are doing, oh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. It's so hard to do that. Like in many, many cases in the, in the interim, it's like not economically rational to continue. Mm-hmm. So you have to have an irrational decision to persist. Mm-hmm. And it's weird about that. It's like, it's one of those things where that those troughs, the only way you get out of those troughs is you're just irrationally persistent. And mm-hmm. then like long, long term, if you're successful, oh, it was a rational decision, but in yeah. the middle, it was irrational. Yeah, right? for sure. And I think when, when you look online now and on Instagram and social media, there's like this hustle porn where everyone wants to hustle, wants to yeah. like start companies. Anyone can have a website, anyone can have an Instagram account with a thousand followers. And there's a lot of folks like spending their resources and their time becoming influencers or becoming YouTube celebrities instead of focusing on the future of future opportunities, maybe tech, maybe other industries, and how could they create a competitive advantage for themselves that requires skill that's going to be super valuable. And I think it kind of relates to your point of like starting companies is really hard. It's a lot easier to be employee number 10 or employee number 50 at one of the like mission-driven companies that you you're passionate about. And then you could also surround yourself with a team and maybe even work remotely like you're suggesting and yeah. then you could save money. But I guess what are your thoughts? Like if you were starting out again and you were, let's say, 18 or 19 years old, would you do anything differently? Like would you go into tech or would you do something completely different? Like what are your thoughts on like what would Balaji do if he was 18 again? Sure. So <laughs> Well, uh, maybe a better question is what would I do if I was like 21, if I had just graduated? Yeah, let's, okay, well, let's say 21. Fine. So yeah. so let's let's assume that I did Stanford or whatever. Fine. Yeah. Okay, fine. And then I can give one if I was 18 and I wasn't doing that. Yeah. Okay. So I would go and get this remote work job, as I mentioned. I would go and save a bunch of money by working remote. And then, you know, maybe I start a company because like I'm interested in that. Or, you know, the, the, the choices that have been on the table so far that we've discussed are founder and employee, right? Oh. But there's now a third, which has become massively more mainstream just over the last year, which is investor. Mm. Anyone can become an investor, right? And it's, again, I want to like underline how much easier it is to like put $10,000 into something rather than to pass an interview and then work for weeks or months or years on on trying to turn that into something. Mm-hmm. Like maybe what the future of the world is, is like, think about Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, it's, it's actually, even though everyone has followers and everybody is following some accounts, the actual Twitter structure is there's a few gigantic celebrity accounts that have hundreds of thousands of followers and then lots of folks who follow those celebrity accounts, right? Mm-hmm. And, or, or, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions or in some case, tens of millions of followers, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe what like the future is, is something where, there's lots of people who are investing in a small, relatively small number of entrepreneurs, but everybody's getting wealthy together. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. So like, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see is like a social network where, you know, okay, it's great to make friends. It's not as great like what, you know, the, the public war zone that some social networks have become. Mm-hmm. But how much better if, you know, every time you check in, it's a notification that's positive sum. You just made some money, right? Mm-hmm. You just back somebody who was promising mm-hmm. and you made some money doing that, right? You took some risk with capital and you got some return in reward. That's something that anybody can do. Mm-hmm. And so like, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this topic because I've always felt there's something kind of lacking in a lot of the startup mantra and jargon over the last 15 years because not everybody can be a founder or employee, but everybody can be an investor. And I think yeah. that's where the thing goes over the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. No. And I, I love, I love like how you phrased it. Just like essentially the way you're positioning these moves is to get more personal runway and to get time, which is essentially like the most valuable to gain these, like you do, you do something, you sacrifice something in order to gain something in the future. Yes. And then once you have this time, you know, you start thinking deeply about, you know, what you want to do next. So, yeah. So now that people are essentially having this time based off of what you just shared with us, people are talking a lot about jobs being created and destroyed because of technology. And they're floating this idea of basic income, which essentially like providing everybody the basic needs that they need with food and shelter, things like transportation in order to like do what they want to do in life. What are your thoughts about basic income and things like that? So I think um, a basic income is an interesting idea. I know that Y Combinator had some interest in, in mm-hmm. studying it. Mm-hmm. From like an execution standpoint, I think it would be easier to implement with the cryptocurrency should people choose to implement it. I'll come just curious. Why, why would it be easier with uh, cryptocurrency? Because you would just be able to hit enter and then everyone would get it on their computer. I mean, of course, this is postulating like yeah. a future time in 10 yeah. or 15 years when blockchain wallets are even more widespread than they yeah. are. And it would sort of be like saying, and well, airdrop. yeah, like, like yeah. one way of putting it is, okay, you can, for the most part, assume that almost everybody has an email account or a phone number at this point mm-hmm. in the US, right? Or not just a phone number, but a cell phone number because, mm-hmm. right. Uh, and I'm not saying everyone, but it's like 80 or 90% of folks mm-hmm. I think have, have that, right. And uh, probably even higher than 90%, uh, but it depends on the stats. Uh, so of course you're going to have to have something to serve those folks who are that mm-hmm. remaining few percent, mm-hmm. but Many forms, government forms, assume there's an email address, assume there's a phone number. If you could get to that level of ubiquity where you could sort of assume that most people are going to have, or the vast majority of people are going to have a blockchain address, a cryptocurrency address of some kind, then it'd be, you know, it'd be more uniform. It'd be easier to quote deposit to their accounts than it would be to 50 different banks with 50 different routing numbers and and all that type of stuff. It's like one address that captures everything. Got it. And before talking about the investing thing and like the clarifying questions that, that we have in our heads about that. Something that you talk about a lot in startup engineering or just in general, it's just like, it's not about the idea, it's the execution. I think it'd be good to elaborate about that and not apply it to just the entrepreneur perspective, but how would you apply the idea maze concept to a career path in the future? Sure. So first, let me explain the the idea maze concept and then the idea versus execution. So the idea maze concept is just that a lot of people tend to put maybe too much weight on just the idea, like, oh... I've got an idea for a photo sharing site on the internet, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get to like the entrance of what I call the idea maze, and then there's a bunch of decisions to make. Okay, is uploading photos free or does it cost you something? Or okay, if it's free, then, you know, is it private or is it public or is it like only to your friends and, and, and so on and so forth, right? Each of those is a turn in the maze that leads to a different solution. And, you know, uh, another one is, do you do it before mobile or after mobile? And some of those turns lead to Flickr or, or to Instagram. And other turns lead to photo sharing sites that you haven't heard of because they shut down and they made the wrong decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the difference between an idea and the idea maze. 
And one of the things about the idea maze is that sometimes a good idea can become a bad idea or vice versa because new phenomenon happens, like mobile appears and now a new door opens and something that was like a pretty good exit in, you know, like 2005, which was Flickr, like I think about 35 million becomes a really big exit in, you know, six years, seven years later with Instagram 2012, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not saying they're the same apps, you know, Mm -hmm. there's differences, but like probably the single biggest difference is the introduction of mobile, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how like a good idea could become a very good idea, right? Mm -hmm. Or another example is like Zipcar versus Uber, right? Mm -hmm. Zipcar was a good company, is still a good company, but it was pre-mobile. And, you know, with Uber, Uber was born on mobile, molded by it, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so is Lyft. So just a different company with a different trajectory. Conversely, sometimes, you know, a door that was open, like build a search engine in the late 90s, kind of arguably isn't as open now. And you could counter argue that you could say DuckDuckGo and and Mm -hmm. so on, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty hard to compete with Google. Like Mm -hmm. they're really good and they put a lot of energy into core search and and whatnot. So it's hard to beat them on their core. So that may be a door that's close. And you can argue with me on that. Maybe, maybe there's, there's a different solution. So that's like the idea maze concept. Now on ideas versus execution, the way to think about that is, you know, it takes a few seconds to write a billion dollar idea on a napkin. And frankly, sometimes that's actually the core of it. Like, you know, if it is, hey, I've got this equation for how I can put a payload into space that no one else has done. All right. Well, actually, that equation is like the core concept, right? You put Maxwell's equations on a piece of paper, that actually packs a lot of really useful information in there, right? Mm-hmm. And there are things like that in math and physics that are really compact, where really the idea is everything. But there's other things like, oh, I'm going to build a social network for dogs where it's all in the execution. It's all in those many micro decisions that you make through the idea maze. And the other aspect of why you know there's a distinction between the idea and the execution is you can imagine a pyramid where, okay, the idea takes you a few seconds. All right, so now let me you know build a, a slide deck on it. All right, that's going to take you a few hours, right? At least, or maybe a day. And build a prototype. Okay, that's a weekend you know, to get like the first thing working. All right, now let me build a product, or actually let me build a like a program out of it, like a, like a really robust program, not a prototype that'll just fall down and do one thing, but like a real program with options and whatnot, maybe a front end, maybe, you know, like a mobile app. All right. That's like probably a few weeks, like mm-hmm. with, if we're honest with the design and, and the iterations and so on. All right. Now let me make that into a product that people will actually download and pay money for. And people have high standards for mm-hmm. what that means. There's a lot of polish that goes into a real product. So that's like at least a month, probably multiple months, probably like a quarter or two quarters. Mm-hmm. All right, now let me actually start selling that and getting revenue. All right, well, that's so much harder. You've got you've got to make it a company. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to incorporate and you've got to maybe hire and you've got to sell. All right, now you've got revenue. All right, and now let me get profits. Well, that's even harder. And so the thing is that the stages as you go from like a few seconds to, you know, a few hours to a few days to a few weeks to a few months to a few years to like mm-hmm. many years it's like so easy to say, oh, I had that idea back in 2010, you know, <laughs> and, and then there's somebody who's just like been working really hard for seven years to turn that into reality. And people really downweight how much work that is because they only see the successes mm-hmm. and they don't see all of that sweat yeah. in the middle. Yeah. yeah and how sure. would you apply that to a career path versus a company? Well, so what I'd say, actually, going back to that earlier theme of just, you know, not everybody can be a founder and employee, but everybody can be an investor investing kind of is just about the idea in the capital, right? If you've got the capital and, and the critical thing with crypto is the capital threshold has come way down, mm-hmm. right? There's people who have put 10 bucks into Bitcoin that have 10,000 or $20,000, right? There's people who put a hundred bucks in there that have like a hundred thousand dollars or $200,000, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what we did back in the day with BitPay, you know, put in a little bit of money into Bitcoin when BitPay was run. Actually, when we connected with you about the Bitcoin 101 yeah. with the Stanford, Bitcoin Stanford group, 
And so we just put it, I think it was $250 at the time. I think I just put $1,200 in and it's like, Thirty thousand now. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you know, so I mean, not, not obviously not everything is Bitcoin. Obviously, yeah. there's a lot of risk. Obviously, a lot of things can go to zero. But the cool part is that the opportunity was available, mm-hmm. right? Like if you know, if you could wind back the clock, there's nothing preventing almost anybody from doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And today, with cryptocurrency exchanges being out there and so on, it's interesting. So, so investing is the area where if you have that idea in the capital, that kind of is it, mm-hmm. right? You just click a button, you take a risk, right? You put in your capital. And someone else can take care of the execution risk. Now, mm-hmm. you're taking capital risk. You know, I'm not, I should want to be very clear about two things. First is, I'm not saying everyone should do this. Yeah. I am saying everyone can do this, mm-hmm. which is different, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you choose to take a lower risk life and just, you know, like just, just a stable kind of thing, fine, more power to you, great, right? But if you're the kind of DNA that may want to be a founder or employee, I say you've got a new path, which is investor or crypto investor. And that's like the high risk, high reward path. Okay. So that's number one. I'm not saying should, I am saying can. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the second point I just want to underline is I'm also not talking about like flipping the investment and day trading it and and so on. I think it's very, very hard and often a fool's game to try to time the market, Mm -hmm. especially in a bear market. And you're arguably, and this is an argument, but you're arguably not adding any value by doing that mm-hmm. versus I think buy and hold where you're long-term investing with an eye towards holding the asset for years or even longer than that, then you're arguably are adding value because, you know, you're backing the entrepreneur or the the developer early on. You know, you've, you've, you've given them probably some capital if it's a primary sale in particular, and you're, you're loyal for a while, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking a risk alongside them as they're, as they're building the thing. And I would say that you know, and, and again, people, this is definitely an arguable point. I think personally, it is easier to identify smart, hardworking people who are relatively underestimated and take a risk with them than it is to time the ups and downs of, of a market where, you know, just crazy things can happen, right? Yeah. Like like the long term, you know, you can you could predict the climate, but not necessarily the weather, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. And like given that you've been able, I mean, before going into the lightning round, that you've been able to see like crypto as this emerging early, you know, phenomenon. Um, I know you've done things with VJ Pan to see like things like genomics and all these things in healthcare happening and like academics are like starting to switch careers. How does someone that's in a quote unquote traditional industry think about, you know, how to decide when to switch or what's the new market that's coming? Like, how do you pay attention to trends or like, what are your thoughts on like staying ahead of trends? Because even though we're optimizing for these big salaries or these different casts to give us this time in the future, you know, how do we think about what's coming next to be able to like make that switch and, and jump in and think about company? How do you think about company selection? Sure. So a couple of different things. One was kind of how do I keep on top of all these different trends? Second yeah. is company selection. So how to keep on top of different trends? Well, sir, you know, one of the things I was saying earlier was just that you have to just naturally be interested in it. It's hard to force yourself to be interested in a topic. You know, like I'm not that interested in in marshmallows or whatever, right? So I'm not <laughs> going to be like Googling on that, you know, and, and or, I don't know, maybe now I am. But like, you know, the genomics biotech stuff has always fascinated me. It is like, the code that underpins us mm-hmm. and you know mistakes in that code lead to mistakes and it's like a really interesting concept and uh so you know there's like nature reviews genetics there's various like kind of review journals that give you a good summary with nice graphics of what's going on i'm not saying they're easy to read for the non-specialist but you know you c- you can get up to speed if you subscribe to those and you know that's what i'll do like whenever i've got downtime right i will just like in the in the uber i'll be like okay what does Nature Reviews Genetics got for me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and one thing actually that um, that I think is good is to have a bunch of like useful stuff on your phone 
that's downloaded so that even if you don't have an internet connection or whatever, you've got like, I don't know, a thousand pages of reading that you want to do. It should be like 10, you do 10 pages here and 20 pages here and, and whatever. And it, it adds up, you know, it's like, it's like offline Twitter and much better than Twitter <laughs> itself, right? Because mm-hmm. Twitter is what's now and not necessarily what's useful. And I also say, you know, another thing that I do is I make a list of skills that I want to build up, right? And I'm, I'm constantly updating that list. And I have that almost as like a, like a mantra or whatever that I'll just repeat to myself, like, oh, okay, I want to learn Rust and the newest, you know, like to get through the DeepMind paper and X and Y and Z, right? And uh, so I'll just have like Rust, DeepMind, X, Y, Z, right? And then maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but if I keep like saying that to myself, I'm like, okay, yeah, let me look at that now, you know? Mm-hmm. So just sort of like a reminder to myself to build those skills and then I'll kind of roughly update that once a quarter or whatever, yeah. right? And then you asked another question, can you remind me? Yeah, so essentially like, so now that, that you're thinking about these different things, like how do you think about company selection? Oh, how do I think about company selection? So, you know, there's there's a lot of different ways to try to pick which companies to bet on, but, you know, the thing that has worked best for me are really two things. First is the obvious one that everyone's going to say, which is, you know, bet on smart, resourceful entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Never say die. And not necessarily the type who do really well in school. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there, there's part of it, right? But there needs to be some degree of disobedience, right? So, you know, like Paul Graham calls it mischief, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe some degree of, you know, like confidence as opposed to, you know, always necessarily taking the teacher's word for it. Sometimes teacher's wrong, Right. And uh, so it's like, it's somewhat correlated with, but not exactly identical to like the person who does well in school, which is why you have, you know, these famous dropouts like Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs and Bill Mm -hmm. Gates and and Zuck and what have you, right? That's the first, like look for this smart, resourceful entrepreneur. And the second bit is really important because there's folks who are smart, but they're not resourceful. They're fragile, you know, like when they get yelled at online or when, you know, they launch their product and everybody screams at them, they're like, oh my God. And they just kind of like quit or whatever, right? And the thing is that if you launch something you know, usually people are yelling at you. And the reason they're yelling at you is, well, if you've, I shouldn't say usually, I'd say often people are yelling at you. And the reason is you've gotten their attention. You've actually, you know, you've, you've done something that is worthy of note. And uh, sometimes if it's, um, if it's particularly polarizing, uh, like let's say Soylent, mm-hmm. right? Or Bitcoin in its early days, that was something where there was very strong contingents for and strong contingents against, especially like, you know, for Soylent, right? That's something where I always think it's really interesting, and I'll usually bet on something like that, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it goes to zero, but it has an outsized positive result yep. because very few things early in their life have a huge community of boosters, and you need a lot of that to like pull yourself out of that kind mm-hmm. of environment, right? So that's kind of the second thing. First, you know, smart, resourceful entrepreneurs, and second, like markets where there's people cheering for you because the opposite of a polarizing product is a blase product yeah. where nobody cares. Everybody's mm-hmm. apathetic, right? Yeah. You have neither boosters nor haters. When you launch, sometimes it feels like everyone hates you because all the people that like you are liking the tweet or buying the product or whatever. And you might have a hundred likes or you know a hundred purchases. As like three like really nasty like responses are like you suck, whatever, <laughs> right? And that sticks out to you and it feels like you, you sort of ignore the positive, or it's not ignore, but it's it's quieter. The positive is often quieter, and the negative is often louder. So it can feel like everyone hates you. Obviously, if you've got a product that truly everyone hates, if it's truly everyone, 100% of people, well, then yeah, you, you're out of business, right? Mm-hmm. But often it'll feel like everyone hates you, but actually you have to focus on the folks who do like it enough to buy it. As long as you have some community there, you can probably you know take that and turn that into something bigger and bigger. Yeah. So we're sitting here at Coinbase and we covered a lot of topics. One of the topics we haven't covered is what is Coinbase? And uh, on the topic of the idea maze, 
what kind of doors uh, is cryptocurrencies and blockchains are opening up and why should people uh, take note of that? Yeah. So what are what doors are, is crypto opening up? Well, first, what is Coinbase? So Coinbase is, you know, America's largest cryptocurrency exchange. And you can think of it as the interface between the fiat banking world and the cryptocurrency world. And this interface is something where it's how you turn, you know, quote, buy Bitcoin is how it started, right? So you turn US dollars into BTC, but now it's bigger than that. You can turn, you know, euros into Ethereum or to Litecoin or other kinds of things. And and we're, you know, in the process of exploring the addition of more assets. We've we've talked about that. So it's like this interface between fiat and crypto, just like a like an ISP in some ways is an interface between the offline and online worlds. And that's what a crypto exchange does. But once you've got them into the crypto world, well, then you can make crypto more useful. And we've got other products that do that, like Coinbase Wallet or or Earn, you know, which lets you use crypto to send, you know, and get replies to emails or let you use crypto in dApps and other kinds of things. So that that's kind of Coinbase in a nutshell, an interface between fiat crypto that also helps make crypto useful. Yeah. 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 And uh, we've actually been um, early adapters of Coinbase. I think back in 2013, uh, there weren't a lot of places where you can even buy crypto. And Coinbase was one of the only, it was the only United States-based exchange where you can connect it to your Bank of America account and start buying cryptocurrency. And nowadays, I think in the, over the last year, the media picked up cryptocurrency for better or for worse. It's been like featured in every kind of publication. And now even like my mom, who doesn't know a lot about technology, is talking about buying crypto. Outside of the hype, what doors do you see crypto opening up? And similar to the idea, Maze, what are people should like pay attention and how should someone outside the industry approach uh, cryptocurrencies? Well, so what should people pay attention about? It's a little bit like the internet in the following sense, right? So in the late 80s, early 90s, most people spent 0% of their time on the internet, right? And then, you know, the median American started to spend a larger and larger and larger percentage of their time on the internet. By, you know, 2018, a lot of people are spending 50% or more of their waking hours on the internet, whether that's, you know, selfies on Instagram or, or Twitter or, or work, you know, Google Docs and Gmail and so on. You're just always online, right? And usually for many people, more than 50% of their waking hours, right? And in the same way, what I think you can start graphing is the percent of net worth that Americans have in blockchain-based assets. And so like, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, it was basically 0%, you know, like before the invention, really 10 years ago, before the invention of cryptocurrency, nobody had anything in blockchain-based assets. And now it's, you know, a non, like a, like a significant percentage, well, let's say a non-zero, let me be more precise, a non-zero percentage of Americans have a significant fraction of their net worth in cryptocurrencies, right? But the thing about the blockchain is it's going to not just be currencies, but it's going to be stocks and it's going to be bonds and it's going to be mortgages and it's going to be loans and derivatives and real estate and also video game swords and collectibles and baseball cards and anything else that's scarce, right? So it's programmable scarcity. So in the same way that the internet went from like basically 0% of your time like 50% of your time, blockchain-based assets are going to go from basically 0% of your net worth to like what your net worth is in like 20 years. It's like all the crypto stuff because it's just better when it's blockchainified. Now, that's still in some ways what's funny is that's like a quasi-controversial statement today because there's folks who are like, oh, the blockchain isn't good for much or whatever. But like a lot of the guys at banks who you know know about this have seen this thing coming for the last five years and, and will under, underline that. It's certainly fairly fairly obvious if you're in tech and you're looking at the 
hundreds of companies that are coming up in all these different areas. Uh, and you know, some of them will work today, some will work tomorrow, some will work in the future. Like, you know, for example, with the internet, Webvan did not work. Lots of delivery startups did not work. And then Instacart really worked, right? So I'm not saying they're all going to work immediately, but I'm going to say over 20 years, pretty much everything scarce is going to be blockchain-based. So that's like the long-term potential of the space. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's really strong. I um, mean, before going into lightning round, I think, you know, we, on the podcast, we like to talk about not just the executives, but also the people on the team. I know um, someone that, that's been on the podcast and worked on your team, who's for Sieb, um, and then that was what, who with you at 21 that turned into Earn. And then there was also uh, Preeti who worked with you at um, Andreessen. Can you talk a little bit about them and like kind of like their journeys and like what, you're, what you've seen in them that are kind of like non-traditional in general? Sure. So, you know, I know Haseeb and Preeti pretty well. Preeti, uh, I met her when I was a GP at Anderson and she was a junior partner there. And, uh, and she, you know, struck me as being like very smart and hardworking and whatnot. I was impressed with the fact that she had gone from USC to Goldman, which is a leap that it's actually kind of hard to make because Goldman's very selective about where they recruit from. And then from Goldman to A16Z. But I was even more impressed with the fact that she then self-taught herself, you know, programming and computer science and got good enough to get a job at Coinbase, which has a very selective and rigorous, you know, engineering interview process. And, um, you know, since then she's been involved with various cryptocurrency startups and now is, you know, running True Story. And yeah, I thought, I think she's just really a great example of tenacity and pull yourself by your bootstraps uh, kind of kind of energy. Haseeb is, you know, also very smart coming from a somewhat different path. He you know, was like a really competent online, not online, I'm not sure if it's online yeah, or online off, poker. Was it online? Yeah. I'm not sure if it's online poker or offline poker, but he's a really competent poker player and won a lot of money with that. And then self-taught himself engineering and got a job at Airbnb and proved himself there as a pretty competent guy. And then after that, then, you know, he was, uh, I actually met him at this like Ethereum, you know, kind of event. Um, and we got talking and he joined uh, Earn. And now uh, recently, you know, I, um, He's a partner at Metastable, which is a crypto hedge fund. And, uh, you know, it's run by a very good friend of mine, Naval, and, yep. and, you know, all those folks are my friends. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, just to highlight that there also are podcast guests. Yeah. Hasib's story, he talks about how he got, got his job at Airbnb, I think episode five or something. Yep. So definitely check out their stories. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round, and this is where Arthur and Ruben will ask you questions. And uh, these questions are meant to help our listeners get strategies and resources that you would recommend they use to get to their career goals based on what you've done in the past. Yeah. Uh, so Arthur, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes it back to the basics. So imagine you just got dropped in a new city. You only have $100 and you're st starting from scratch again and you're trying to break into tech. So how would you spend that $100? Oh, uh, like, so I'm like at, at zero and the only asset I have is a hundred bucks. So yeah, let's say you don't have the skill yet, but you're, you're trying to break into tech. So how would you spend a hundred dollars to level up and get a job in tech? Zero assets. Let's say you have housing. In, okay. Yeah. So I have yeah, housing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So fine. Let's fine. assume housing is taken okay. care of. Uh, do I have a computer? Uh, let's, let's say you have a computer. Yeah. Let's say you have a computer. Okay. Public library. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I'd probably do is I would, let's see, a hundred bucks. I guess I would buy a domain name and then... I would learn to code from free online tutorials mm -hmm. and I would post up that stuff there and I would spend the money on like, you know, maybe AWS, uh, even though AWS has a free tier, mm -hmm. it's got like EC2, Google Cloud has free tier stuff and so on. Yeah. And so what I would try and do is actually there was, there's a lady who did this a while back, like called like a hundred days of code mm -hmm. where she just was like, okay, look, you know, it's like a painter who draws the same portrait 
but does it like a hundred days in a row and eventually just gets better and better. Right. And, uh, so you, you do something like that where, you know, you've got the domain, so you kind of show you're serious. So it's like you can get it from Namecheap or something for a few dollars. And then pretty much everything else is free other than maybe the computer time. And uh, you just do the kinds of projects you can do on an EC2 micro instance. And, uh, and all of that would be free. And then you just, as you built that portfolio of all this open source code that you've got, you just like, you know, you've got 200 startups that you've got in a Google spreadsheet and you find an engineer there and you say, hey, is this cool? You follow them on Twitter, you reply to their comments, you know, you comment on their blog and you try to add value. That's like really important. Mm -hmm. Your first interaction with somebody generally shouldn't be an ask. It should be a give. And I do believe that if you kind of do that enough, then folks will be like, wow, that guy was really helpful, right? And, uh, you know, this, of course, assumes you have time, right? You you have a roof over your head, you have food. Like, I'm not able to solve those problems. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's hard. But if you have time, if you have food, if you have like this public library computer, that's yeah. how it bootstrap yourself. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, awesome. that's good. That's good feedback. And, uh, no, given that the first ask on Twitter shouldn't be, you know, it, it, given that it shouldn't be an ask, um, I've always wanted to ask you this because like, I know I was following you for a long time before we connected. And then eventually you said, you sent a DM that said, we should get you into tech. Like what actually got you to say that? I thought you were a really resourceful guy. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I could sense that sort of spirit of, you know, resourcefulness that I see in good entrepreneurs. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're someone who would, who would do well there. That's why I said it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Awesome. And then um, you also talked about these monthly things that are, in your head that you repeat. So we like to talk a lot about mindset as well. And so, you know, what's your routine like? What's Bozzy's routine in the morning or during the day? What music do you listen to? What inspires you when you take breaks? Like, what what do you do? Sure. So like, what's my routine like? Well, I'll usually come up with a few words that summarize what my priorities are and I'll put them on my phone. So it's like A, B, C, and D, right? And like quasi rhymes or whatever, right? And so then every time I open my phone, I'm seeing A, B, C, and D. So even if I'm like not even consciously reading, it's going to my subconscious. So usually A is the most important project that I need to work on that day, right? And so like, okay, if I've done nothing else, I move the ball forward on A. Then I've got some time, I move the ball on B and then C and then D in that order. And generally you don't have the time to move things forward on more than three or four axes at the same time. So you also want to define what an endpoint is because like if you're constantly doing the same thing. So that's like how I kind of, you know, organize my time. And you know, and then in addition to that, I've got like the formal to-do list, right? And you should use whatever to-do list you'll actually use, right? Whether it's the notes app or the reminders app on the phone, I use Emacs org mode. If you guys you may or may not know what that is, but it's like a, it's like an engineer's to-do list uh, kind of app, right? And, uh, you know, just, just something that you'll actually use is the to-do list. So that's how I organize my time. And often it'll be things where I, th- I feel like on a daily basis or weekly basis, I'm not making too much progress. But then on a monthly basis or a yearly basis, I look back and I'm like, oh, you know, actually, I kind of got a lot of stuff done. Because what I try to do is, aside from those like major priorities, I set almost everything else to zero, right? Like, and that's easier if you don't have the desire to go to the club, right? Like, I don't have the desire to go to Florence, <laughs> Italy or, or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, I just, I don't care about traveling. I mean, it's good for some people. It's fine. <laughs> I don't begrudge them it, right? And, uh, you know, so then what will I do recreationally? There's like, there's a book that I basically, like a book and a half that I read and reread over and over again. And it's, um, there's a Princeton guide to pure mathematics and applied mathematics. And these two books are like, they're like encyclopedias, but that are really wonderful because you can just like read one page at a time or you can read the whole chapter at a time. 
and you can just like read and reread these. They're just like, you know, for that kind of person, they're fun to reread. So that's like something I'll do. So it's like math proofs and things like that? It's like math. It's like an introduction to various math concepts, right? Mm. And you know what it's like is just being in the middle of nowhere and being able to do like pull-ups with your brain, right? <laughs> so it's like, okay, boom, let me knock out 10 or whatever, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so now what I used to do is I used to actually work out all the time and I used to be in really good shape. And now, you know, with startups and like fatherhood and all the type of stuff that that has obligate, you know, especially as like an executive or CEO, you don't have as much control over your schedule. And so, you know, that's something that I want to get back into like as like the first bit, but certainly on those days where you work out, you're, you know, in, in like, you know, top mental condition as well. So that, I think that should be an ideal part of a routine, even if it's not necessarily on, on a daily basis. Possible. Yeah. Cool. And uh, we're about to wrap up. This is the last question. So it's a bit of a doozy. So if you could be born at any time in history, either past or future, what time would you choose and why? Now. Yeah. No, I mean, like you can learn. I mean, this is, it, given all the negative stuff, whatever, sometimes it's in the headlines. You know, I think the best is in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. Like so much better to have running water and internet and, and all this stuff today than even like 150 years ago when you didn't have that stuff. And uh, I think that's like, you know, assuming civilization continues, that's usually going to be the right answer. Like the best time to be born is now. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. What's the best way to stay in touch with you? Twitter. Beautiful. Yep. Sure. Z S. Yep. Everybody. So without further ado, thank you for taking time with us. And without, yeah, yeah let's break in. Let's, let's break, break in. in. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.